Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike and Davina. Let's get started. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the Master Mix Podcast. I'm Mike and Davina. Thank you so much for joining me today. Today's a really cool episode. I'm interviewing Eric Ratz, who if you're not familiar with him, Eric is a producer, engineer, and mixer who has worked with many of the top acts in Canada, including bands like Billy Talent, Big Wreck, the Arkells, Cancer Bats, Danko Jones, and a whole bunch more. And he's actually been the recipient of the Juno Award, which is Canada's version of the Grammys, basically. Uh, but he's won the Juno Award for Recording Engineer of the Year twice now, both in uh, 2014 and in 2015. He's also got to be one of the most nominated engineers for that award. He's been nominated many other times, so uh, definitely a very talented, skilled engineer. And whenever you listen to any of the records that he's worked on, one thing that you'll immediately notice is that he just has this really amazing skill for capturing amazing sounding guitars. All of his guitars just sound huge. They're very tight. They sound massive. And that's definitely something that we talk about in this interview because I was very curious about how he managed to get them to sound so huge and super tight. So uh, that's definitely one thing that we talk about in this podcast, as well as some other lessons, including kind of just paying your dues and constantly working on your craft. We talk about tracking records with a very extreme attention to detail so that the mixing process becomes way easier. And he also tells a really cool story about working with Chris Lord Algae and uh, some lessons that he taught him all about master bus compression. So I know that you're going to find this episode really interesting and you're going to love a lot of the stories that he tells. He's a really funny guy and uh, he knows what he's talking about. So let's not waste any more time. Let's just jump right into it. So Eric, thank you for being on the podcast. Great to be here, Mike. Awesome. So for people who might not necessarily know your story and how you got to the point where you are now, can you give us a little bit of, a little bit of that background? Yeah, I, uh, I started out as an assistant engineer runner at Phase One Studios in Scarborough, uh, I guess in the early 90s. It was an internship that I got through school and just got to work with a lot of great producers and engineers and uh, in bands and see how th- records were made properly and you know, from there, uh, I got the chief engineer position and got to work with a lot of the, the bands who came in that didn't have producers or engineers. They were just like renting the studio. So, uh, I got to cut my teeth a little bit in that regard by sort of trying things out that I learned from these, from the pros, let's call them on these bands coming in. You know, usually it was usually like Scarborough metal and thrash metal bands. Yeah, it was kind of cool, man. What I learned in school didn't apply too much to what I learned in the studio my first week. So, um, you know, some things did, obviously, but um, it was definitely uh, eye-opening being on a session, a professional session with things happening, session guys uh, or, or a producer, engineer, seeing the dynamic, how that all worked. They didn't really teach me that in school. So so did you go to school for audio production? Yeah, I did. I went to school. I went to Harris Institute. Uh, the second year it was open. You know, it was great and everything. I... I like it was a good way to sort of introduce yourself into some of the things that you might come up against in the music business and especially in the production engineering field. I respected all my teachers. A lot of them worked in the field. Like David Bendeth was my A&R guy. Oh, wow. Yeah, he did. Uh, he, he taught A&R. 
you know, there's there's a lot of a lot of knowledgeable people that work there, and uh, I learned a lot from them in that regard. Yeah. So you said that when you started working in the studios, it was totally different than what you learned in school. In in what regards? Oh, just the dynamic between how a session flows. My responsibility and duty as a, an assistant and a runner to the session. Watching the dynamic between the producer and the artist and the producer and the engineer and the engineer and the artist. And it was actually a little bit overwhelming at first. One of the one of the first sessions I was on was a uh, a big production. Uh, Attic Records came through with this uh, artist called John James, and he was like sort of a uh, disco kind of dude who wanted that old seventies kind of sound. So he hired this um, producer called Peter Cardinelli, who's a very well known bass player producer in the city. He's a top session guy, and he came in with the old boys club with the Tower Power horn section and like all all the old school cats, man, that did all that disco stuff back in the day. And just seeing those guys, like just being around musicians at that level and seeing how a, a session, we're going to 24 track analog and there was probably, let's see, six horn guys, bass player, two guitar players, two keyboard players, and then they were all playing to drum loops. So remember, this is back in the day before Pro Tools or anything like that, man. So, you know, I was in charge of having to lock up whatever the guy was using. It might have been a Mac or something, a small Mac with performer to the tape machine, always making sure it's going. A, a lot of stuff I was responsible for early on, which I had no clue of what I, what the hell I was doing. And luckily, the engineer, Lenny DeRose, was, was awesome with me and, you know, explained, you got to do things this way. You were my right hand man. You know, you're not the coffee boy. You're not, you're not the lowly assistant. You know, you're my right hand man. Things need to flow a certain way. This is how they're going to flow. Do this and everything will be great. So he really kind of uh, detailed my job description on that session <laughs> very clearly. And luckily, everything went great. And it was an awesome learning experience. And it really helped me uh, later on when a big sessions rolled in like that with like full live off the floor, you know, yeah. six guys in the band all wanting to go right there and then, you know, doing bed tracks. So I never did anything like that in school. It was always like, oh, we'll go into this studio and, you know, record a bass overdub on this song that's terrible, you know? <laughs> with a crappy bass player. And <laughs> with a crappy bass player, you know? And that was a little discouraging because I remember being in school going, holy crap, this is like, this is not what I was expecting, you know? Yeah. I was I, I was expecting how it was in the Trevis commercials where, you know, it's like they, they're, they're there at action in the studio guy doing slap bass and me at the console recording it, you know, bring up the drums. You know, it's like, so yeah, it was to totally different than that and learned very quickly that there is a, there is a hierarchy sort of pecking order when you're in the studio and you're starting out. And I was at the bottom, man, you know, I, I wasn't lead guitar. I was lead mop. So <laughs> I like it was, how you put that. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was, uh, you know, you, you, I learned really quickly where, where my place was and, and what I needed to do to, the level I need to be to work at the level that I saw Lenny and Nelly and guys like that working at. So yeah. it's, it's a, and, and you kind of mentioned like, you know, they brought in like the best of the best session players for that session versus like what you were used to at yeah. school, the crappy bass player, you know, people who just no professionalism at all. I find it funny. Cause like a lot of people say, you know, it's about the players and like when you have great players, they make your job easier like, did you find that to be true or did you also feel like because that was like a whole new ball game for you, it made it almost harder? Oh yeah. No, no. A hundred percent. It was like, I was in a band and the, the whole reason why I kind of went to recording school was because I wanted to make a free record for my band. We went and made a demo 
and we, we had a horrible recording experience. And the recording didn't turn out bad, but the experience was a nightmare. And and uh, uh, I just thought, you know, watching the guy, watching the engineer do his thing, I was like, I could do this. Like, I do this on my four track at home. This is just bigger than my four track. So I thought, yeah, I can do this. And and I played bass in the band, and so I I got the gig at Phase One, and and I thought, great. I'm you know the owners at the time, Paul Gross and Doug Hill. They were like, look, we're not going to pay you because you're an intern through the school. Um, if you get good, we'll figure something out. But until then, go mess around with the gear all you want on your free time and learn how to use it. You, then you become an asset to us, right? Otherwise, if you don't know anything, why would we ever pay you? You know, if you're just sitting there getting coffee, like we can get anybody to do that. Or patching in, you know, an LA-2A on a cross and insert on a strip. We can get anybody to do that. So he goes, you, you need to become an asset to us. So I was like, perfect. I'm like, can I bring my band in? And they're like, absolutely bring your band and it was weird phase one was going through a weird transitional period at the time they had three rooms two ssls and an old neve and at the time the neves weren't really in fashion and uh they were going through really hard times they ended up closing down two of the rooms kept the main room sold the ssl for money to pay rent and uh put this old neve back in so when paul was showing me around the studio my first day i walked into the control room big beautiful control room you know, big speakers and tape machines. And, and there's this like 8028 console, this old, it looked like a preschool. <laughs> like, I'm like, what the fuck is this? You know, it was split console, wasn't in line or anything. Wasn't like any of the desks I had ever been on. And I'm like, what? This is a piece of crap. What the, <laughs> you know? So I'm thinking like, what did I get myself into? I go out on the floor and all the mics are there and there's all these like, you know, I, I didn't know at the time, but, you know, Telefunk and U47s and like all these old mics. And I'm like, what the hell is this? You know, like, he's like a junk. But then when I actually recorded shit through them, like my first recordings in there with my band sounded better than anything. Like they were like, oh my God, this is, how is he, how are you making it sound so good? And I'm thinking like, I don't know, man. It's like, I'm just, I'm not doing anything. <laughs> So, uh, you know, to, to our ears, it sounded great. I'd go back and listen to it now. It sounds like dog crap, but well, I'm not dog crap, but it, it doesn't sound amazing. Yeah. So I just, I, I realized I'm, I'm like, wow, maybe there's something to this. And then th- it was about around the time Nirvana broke. I remember being in the studio and this guy, Butch Vig shows up. He's going to record this band, the Smashing Pumpkins. And they're looking for an old vintage Neve to do it on. He's in Toronto that day. So he comes by and he's checking out the console. He's like, yeah, man, because this is like, Pretty close to the to the console I did the Nirvana record on. He goes, you know, it's a great console. It's all class A, the freeze, everything. It's, it's fantastic. So I kind of clicked to me there. I was like, hmm, maybe this thing is coming back into style. And sure enough, it did. It was only a 24 input, eight buses, and 24 monitor section. Paul got a line on a basically another console, which was almost the same. And we spliced the two together one year. And it ended up becoming a 44 input. Neve console and thing was it was just huge man and he outfitted it with automation which i thought was a bad move but at the time it really helped me uh dial my mixing skills in because until then i was mixing everything literally by hand so mixes because i used to mix to dat back in the day you know you'd usually have to run through like 10 11 mixes before you got it right with all the moves and usually there was a my assistant at the console maybe one, one of the main guys in the band who actually knew what was going on 
we're all sitting there. We have our moves. We have the, the tape on the console and we're, we're kind of doing our thing. So it kind of focuses you to, you know, makes you sort of focus on the, the meat and potatoes of the mix and not all the fancy uh, reverbs and all that other crap. Right. So um, that kind of made me, uh, it made me realize it's more important to get your balancing right before you start adding your effects and your EQ. And that's what I would do first. I'd, I'd literally balance the mix mm-hmm. and uh, then start sort of dialing the kick drum a little more, you know, brightening the guitars, adding some different compression to the vocal. Uh, and, and then, you know, a little reverb here and there. And, you know, so, so spoiled, man. Like they had all the best gear there. They had AMS stuff. You know, four ADLs, two two fours, real plate reverbs. You know, now I think back and I'm like, man, I couldn't have lucked out more by starting out at phase one. So, yeah. I, I love that you told that story about how you thought the Neve was a piece of junk, <laughs> but then, <laughs> but then you like came in and you worked on it, and it really did something for you. Like, it's just it's trusting your ears at that point, right? Because I feel like these days there's so many people who are just starting who they hear the word neve and they're like oh it's like the greatest thing ever right and like they expect that that's going to be like that is what they need to make amazing records and stuff like that and you're just like whatever i'm gonna take this hunk of junk and just work with it and do what i can and i didn't know any better man i I didn't know like uh that's all i had it's 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 either that or go to studio with a fancy board what i thought was a fancy board and record my band, but I couldn't afford it. You know, I, was, I, I, I wasn't getting paid as it was being there. It was, you know, free everything. And I remember the, the chief engineer there at the time was a guy named Dave, uh, David Horner, who actually went on to LA and started doing like all the movie stuff. He, he became a, a big uh, movie mixer and a TV mixer down in LA. And uh, I remember first couple days there, he's like showing me all the gear. He's like, you will never find better LA two A's anywhere in the city or even the country. These Pultex, all this gear is like top of the line. The GML, uh, you know, surgically, like he just went through everything with me, man, the first week and, you know, taught me how to align the tape machine and which was an A80, which was great because it, I didn't have to get down on my knees or pull cards out or anything. It was all right there in front of me. And, you know, he, he, he he really uh, taught me the proper fundamentals of uh, of being a, a studio assistant, and that really helped. Man, he, the guy was uh, he was very patient with me. And yeah. Same with Lenny. Lenny was very patient with me too, because you know, in the back of my mind, I'm like, boy, you know, as soon as my album comes out, as soon as we finish recording my album, my album comes out, and I'm touring the world. I don't have to be here an hour and a half before everybody, or get people coffees, and <laughs> then clean up and mop at the end of the night after everyone's gone. You know, I was doing like 14, 15 hour days, man. I was living at home with my parents. You know, they were just like looking at me like, "What is going on with you, man?" You know, I just remember at one point the studio got so busy, and I was the only assistant slash runner there. So um, I was doing all the house gig sessions with Dave. And then any outside engineer or band that came in, I was doing it as well. So it got really busy. And I remember for about a one week, I kind of had to sleep there every night. And uh, Paul Gross calls in one morning and he's like, uh, can you call your mom? I'm like, what? He's like, yeah, have you been home at all this week? And I'm like, no. He goes, yeah, call your mom. So I call my mom and she's like, she's, I'm worried about you. you haven't been home in days and you haven't called and you haven't. And I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm working, I'm working, I'm working. So this became a bit of an issue. So I remember going home that week and, and my parents sit me down. They're like, look, son, I know your passion is music and you seem to like this, but 
you got to really think about it. You know, you borrow money off us every week to put gas in your car. You're never home. You you sleep at the studio. You're not getting paid. Like, you know, maybe you, you've given it a try. Like, maybe you should think about doing something else. Like, you were always you were always good at uh, trade stuff, or um, uh, you're always good at this thing. And maybe you should maybe you could go go to school and learn something. So I w- went back to work and kind of with, with my sort of all all sad and shit. And and Doug Hill, he's like, hey, what's wrong? Walk into his office and I kind of tell him the whole story. He's like, okay, bring your parents in. I'm like, what? He goes, yeah, bring them by the studio. And I'm like, when? He goes, anytime, just bring them by. So one day I'm like, on your way home from work, mom and dad, come by the studio. I want to talk to you about something. And I want to show show you the studio. So they, they come by after work. They walk in and it was a little bit impressive because like when I first walked in, it was like this lounge with video games, TV, gold records plastered all over the place. It was insane. Like I'd never seen anything like it before. And uh, so they walked in and they saw the same thing. They're like, what? I think they were thinking I was in, in some kind of like dungeon or dark, like concrete room or something, you know? <laughs> so I take him into the studio and I uh, load up, a, I, I go grab a reel of tape. I, you know, give him the tour, give him the tour of the live floor and all the microphones. I, I go grab a roll of tape, spool it on the tape machine, rewind it, hit play and, and start like soloing drums and stuff for my mom, you know, <laughs> and, and, and showing her the gear and showing her stuff. And she, like the look on her face is just like, she, she's in shock and she turns to me and she goes, you know how to work all this stuff? I was like, yeah, this is what I do. I facilitate other engineers. I help them. I record stuff. I know how to do all this stuff. And she saw all the gold records and everything. Um, I think Doug or Paul was still there. And so she talked to them for a few minutes and I introduced them and uh, told me what a great job I was doing, that I had a bright future, blah, 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 all that crap, all that nonsense. And yeah, they never, never said anything ever again. And I, I love that story, man. It was, That's- it, it was insane. Like I n- never got any more grief about like, Oh, maybe you should, uh, maybe you should consider something else. So, uh, and it was shortly after that too, that, cause I was working weekends at a, a stereo store in Oshawa called crazy Kelly's and, and I was delivering TVs and shit on the weekend to make money to come to work and work for free. So, uh, which sounds crazy when you think, when I think about it now, <laughs> But at the time, but you were just following your passion. That's all. Well, at the time, I'm like, well, this makes sense to me because if I don't work on the weekends, then I'm I I lose this amazing gig, you know, and 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 someone else will take it. So, uh, so it made sense to me. And then eventually, you know, it just got to the point where I'm like, look, I can't keep borrowing money off my parents. I went to Doug's office and I, I'm telling him this. And he goes, okay, hold on. He goes goes in his drawer, pulls out a piece of paper, calls his number. He's talking to some guy. Hangs up the phone. He's like, "Okay, go down to uh, Morningside and and this thing. There's a there's futures office there. Go talk to this guy. He's gonna set you up in the program, and they're gonna pay you." <laughs> it was that and easy. I was like, what? <laughs> I'm, yes. So so I'm, I'm I'm like standing there. He's like, "What are you waiting for? Go <laughs> like go." <laughs> so I get my car, drive down, talk to this guy. He signs me up. He's like, "Yeah, he's, I'm just gonna fast track you, man. Uh, you don't need to do any of these classes and stuff." kind of already got a job. We already know we've, we've dealt with phase one before you're fine. Uh, you just got to come by and pick up your check every week. I'm like, check every week. (laughs) Yes. Thank you government. And, uh, so I was like, 
awesome. So at the end of the week, I go down and pick up my check, open it up. $125. Yes. <laughs> this is great. I don't have to borrow money off my parents anymore. So I was making uh, basically 500 bucks a month. So uh, that's, that's awesome. I, I love that story, man. It was, it, it was crazy. So I'm sure that there's lots of people listening right now that have been through a similar experience or, or, or want to be like, I can think of my parents too. Like my parents still have no idea what the fuck I do. Like, <laughs> you know, like to them, it's like they, they helped me get started when I first, when I, when I was first going, you know, and they, and they remember seeing me have a little tape recorder and to them, I think that's, that's what they think it is, you know, and they don't yeah. understand the power of like our computers now and what we can do and the multi-tracking and everything like that. So yeah, I, I love that story. It's like making me want to call my parents and be like, come to the studio tonight. <laughs> come to the studio. <laughs> I yeah, no, uh, to show you. It's funny because now thinking back to it, I'm like, Doug told me after he was like, he's like, yeah, he goes, you think this is the first time I had a guy call his parents in, you know? And I'm like, Oh, I guess not. So, um, and you know, like I'm like my first interview with Paul, like he was, telling me he's like he's like look you know this is uh, the studio business sucks you know you're young i was i think i was like 20 19 or 20 at the time and he goes look you're young you, you have a future go to school the music business is no place for a kid like you it's terrible there's no money the gst ruined everything like he's like bitter he goes but you know if you decide to, that this is what you want to do there's a lot of great guys that came out of here he goes you know uh jack richardson used to work here his son, Garth Richardson, who's, you know, produced Rage Against the Machine and a bunch of these other bands. He started out here, Lenny DeRose, uh, Randy Staub, you know, Metall like mm -hmm. produced Metallica. He, st he started out here. He so he starts listing all these guys and who I didn't even fucking know. I was just like, uh, who? You know, I was, I, was, I, was listening to, I was listening at the time, I was listening to bands like The Smiths and The Cure. And, you know, I wasn't really, I wasn't mm -hmm. really big even though I come from like a classic rock background, I wasn't big into that music at the time. I was more into alt rock or yeah, I guess alternative music, I guess they call it at the time or modern rock or whatever. Yeah, man. They like, so going into the tape library at phase one, I, I would look and I would see, I'd take out a, a two inch tape and I'd look and I'd be like, Oh yeah. Wow. Garth Richardson was the assistant on this, mm -hmm. you know, or, or, or Randy Staub engineered this. Yeah. And it's funny that you mentioned those guys too, because I I know that like some of those guys had a very similar experience to you where they were pulling those like crazy hours, never coming home. Like I remember, so Jack Richardson was one of my mentors early on and he taught me at school and everything. And I remember him telling us a story about how he went through this phase where he was just at the studio for like two months straight, basically. And his wife actually ended up putting an ad in one of the big music magazines saying, Jack, come home. <laughs> like she paid for that so he would see it <laughs> and i think at that point it was like okay i, I gotta relax a little bit <laughs> oh yeah yeah but but i think that that yeah. just speaks volumes as to like how much passion you put into the project and how much you like push yourself to continue to learn and just be like in in the trenches with it i'm curious now like i, I still feel like those crazy long hours and all that stuff that still exists in the industry but oh, yeah. i'm sure with experience and time, you've probably started to pull back on that a little bit yourself. Are you still working those crazy hours or have you, have you tried to develop more of a regular schedule and more sanity in your life? <laughs> well, I do those crazy hours when they need to be done and they still need to be done, man. Like there's always deadlines. We're kind of at the mercy of the artist. So 
if the artist gets sick or his vibe is wrong and he can't get the vocal part or the drum part or whatever, it's our job as producers and engineers to, you know, be patient, help them through it and guide them through it. You're the captain of the ship, you know? Mm -hmm. So if, if there's a problem, you have to figure out a way to solve it. You know, we're just glorified problem solvers, in my opinion. You know, sometimes that takes longer than... 10 hours, right? Or eight hours. I try and keep my day to eight. Usually start start at 10 in the morning and try and finish around six or seven. Got a kid now, you know, you know he's two and a half. Being away from him at this point, sometimes it, it weighs on your brain a little bit, you know? Mm. You, you want to be there, and, and especially in these early years. When he's a teenager, he's not going to want to see me at all. So this is kind of my only chance. Hey, he might want to come <laughs> in the studio with you. Who <laughs> yeah. knows? You know, all he loves the studio. He comes in all the time. So he, yeah, he loves dad's work. Still do the crazy hours every now and then, but I've definitely scaled it back. When, you know, when I was in my twenties and thirties, absolutely ridiculous, man. It was 12, 14 hour days constantly. I remember going, uh, working on albums in the last three weeks of the album, no days off. And you start getting crazy. You had a little bit of cabin fever, you know, and you start losing perspective on things. And so now I, you know, I try and, uh, have breaks during the day and I try and have breaks within the time frame of the session. So, and being a producer and being in charge of the schedule and everything, it allows me to do that. Yeah. When you're engineering and on the band and producer schedule, you have, you have a less say in that. That's very difficult. I found in the past, you know, like if, if the producers feel like he wants to have an all nighter, guess what? You're having an all nighter. So, uh, and that's just how it works. And, uh, you know, you roll with that and and uh, hope it doesn't happen too often because, you know, your ears are organs. So mm. when they're tired, they're not working well. Yeah. So you were saying that now that you're producing more, you're a little bit more in, in, in control of your schedule and stuff. Was the decision to get into producing more influence because of that or like as opposed to just like engineering and mixing records full time? Like what made you decide to get into producing more? Uh, well, it just sort of, it was more by default, like, especially in the early days at phase one, a band would come in and if I wanted to get out of there in any certain time, I literally had to start steering the ship, you know, cause they would also be looking at me like, Oh, was that any good? You know? And now I'm making the decision. Yeah, that was good. Or you know what? No, that was terrible. Cause in the back of my head, I'm like, I'm going to get to mixing and we're going to have to recut that vocal because the singer ain't going to be able to live with it. So you start making decisions right there and then. It kind of puts you in that role of steering the ship. Kind of fell into it naturally. But, you know, back in the day, you could make a great living being some guy's engineer, you know, like a producer guy's engineer. He had all the pressure. He had everything. You just basically got sounds and, you know, recorded stuff. And that was sort of the road I wanted to go down. You know, I thought, yeah, if I could hook up with a producer, because that's what I saw in my days. I saw an engineer come in. He had a certain job, and the producer had a lot more responsibilities. He was managing the band, managing the the engineer, you know, managing the studio. Like the like he was managing me. Like, hey, that guy needs a music stand. Come on, let's go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I kind of sort of fell into it by working with a lot of those Scarborough metal bands, and just by default, I became the producer. And you know, I, I started getting those credits on those albums, and I'd be like, oh, right, gee, I didn't even know I was the producer on that record. You know, because I got to put somebody down to make it look professional. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> so then, what do you define as the role of a producer? Then, kind of the uh, sort of the captain of the ship, I guess, or like the guy who guides the ship through the channel, facilitates the artist's vision to the public. Here's me in the middle. 
artist wants to do this and I need to take that and make it so that their fans and the general public understand it and digest it properly. So I feel that's my role. You know, I'm a very laid back producer uh, in the sense where uh, I'm not a bully with my ideas. You know, I, I feel everyone should have their say. Uh, but if I feel strongly about something and I know it's wrong and I know they're going down a wrong path, I will, I will definitely uh, uh, push the issue, yeah. you know, and be like, hey, I, I really strongly believe that you guys shouldn't be doing that. You should be doing this instead. I try and do a lot of my work in pre-production. Sometimes I don't get that luxury, though. Like I, I just produced the, the New York Hells record and I would literally get an email with an MP3 with Max and a piano and that's it. And it's like, okay, we're in next week. And we would literally do a song in three days. So, <laughs> and, that, uh, start and that album finish, sounds man. huge. Like it, it's, oh, thanks, it's definitely man. like, I feel that listening to that band, I love that band. I feel like when they first started off, everything was a little more straightforward rock. And now it's just getting bigger and bigger and more elements and stuff like that. So, oh, yeah. so to me, it, to hear that they're coming to you with just a piano and a vocal and saying, let's turn it into this like massive thing. Like, where do you even begin with that? Well, same thing. Usually uh, meet at the studio and we chat about it. You know, sometimes Max will send me a reference. One of the guys will send me a reference like, hey, man, check. We love not this, but we love what the horns kind of do in this song in the chorus. Or they'd be like, what are you hearing for drums for this? And I'd be like, well, I kind of hear like a 70s disco thing. If this is sort of the, the direction you're going with this. Mm-hmm. And they're like, yeah, let's try that. Oh, I'm hearing more of a lo-fi drum sound for this. Yeah, let's try that. So, and you know, some, sometimes things work, sometimes things don't. Sometimes you got to adjust on the go, right? Yeah. I always try and have things a little bit flexible in the recording where it's like, I'll record big rooms, but also have the, the kit in such a way that if I take the rooms out, it's a nice dry tight kit. Mm, that makes sense. So definitely options are good, um, but I also like uh, committing to things. So, you know, once the drums are done, if, if we are going for that tight seven, like with the Arkells, once we had the tight 70s things, Usually, uh, there'd be some kind of guides that we did, and usually yeah, it's good guide vocal from Max, which, you know, sometimes it'd end up being the lead vocal, mm-hmm. you know, because we go through and work them a little bit, and I feel you always should have the, uh, the, the vocal present uh, whenever you're doing the rest of the overdubs, because it's sort of your anchor, right? Yeah, for sure. It's, 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 uh, it's what everything needs to fit around. If you're not listening to the vocal, that's uh, probably... You're probably going to have to redo a few things. So do you prefer having bands come to you with like super stripped down demos and then say, let's turn it into something bigger? Or would you prefer that they come fully flushed out? Does that matter to you? It doesn't matter too much, but I got to say, there's, there's something I do love about like with Big Rack. We, like right now what we're doing is Ian plays me iPhone recordings and I'm either like, that's awesome. Or oh, let's try, what else you got? You know, so, so, uh, I'll take those, put them into Pro Tools, make uh, sessions out of them, you know, kind of map out the parts and make notes about, about what I like. And I kind of like that a little bit better because it allows me to use my own imagination where I think everything can go and allows me to have ideas instead of just be, being thrown at track saying, this is what we got. This is it. This is everything. Let's go. Now let's make it sound really good, which is kind of the Billy Talent route. Billy Talent will come to me with, Pretty much finish. Here, here's the tune, man. I'm, <laughs> I'm kind of hearing, you know, because uh, in Ian's own, Ian's a fantastic producer, so he'll be like, "This is the general idea for sounds on this demo. This is all the parts are here. Nothing's really gonna change. These are the vocal melodies. These are the harmonies. I just want this now to sound great, big, and professional. Yeah. So it sound like our band mm-hmm. instead of demos. Got it. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. 
So and in that regard, it's great too, because Ian sort of flushed out everything. That band does what they do. And there's no guesswork, man. It's making, making the stuff sound amazing and getting everyone's performance to be great. So Now, do you like to get involved in the songwriting or do you kind of leave that up to the band and kind of just steer them in a direction here and there kind of thing? Generally, let the band do the songwriting part. Um, I've seen too many fights, man, back in the day about, you know, producer getting involved and then the album comes out and the producer's suing the band because he you know, wrote these four lines in the, in the lyric and suggested that chord change. You know, it's like, I do that all the time, man. I don't ask for publishing. Some guys would be like, oh, you're stupid then. But in my sense, I'd rather have the, the band return to me because we had a great time and great vibe and there was no crazy weird shit going on. Yeah. You know, like I'm grabbing at a piece of something that might never do anything. You know, I've, I've contributed lyrics. I've contributed chord change stuff to bands. I do a lot of arrangement stuff. Like, I'll be like, hey, cut the, make that shorter. We don't need that pre-course. Turn, make, let's make maybe the pre-course is the bridge now. You know, like that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's just production, man. I, like I said, it's guiding the ship, you know. Boy, you really want to say, I think you should use an ad instead of a the. You know, some guys would want publishing for that. And it's like, <laughs> to me, it's like, to me, it's too petty. You know, yeah. it's like, really? I'm going to go sour a relationship over a, a the you know, or because I changed a word to this, you know, it's, it's not worth it to me, man. Yeah. Unless they come and offer me saying, Hey man, you did so much on this. Uh, we want to give you a piece of this. That's all fine. Which has happened too before where they've been, yeah, man, we definitely want to, you did a lot more than just produce this. Here's publishing on it. Yeah. And that's, that's all fine too. It's kind of so. like that Steve Albini approach as well of like, you know, not necessarily taking the royalties, just do the best job and like make yeah. the band happy, do their thing, that kind of thing. Well, ro- royalties are so, uh, it's, it's such a facade now. We call it AirPie because, you know, like nobody sells records anymore. Um, the only thing I really have in my in my deal memos with uh, producer deal memo is Sound Exchange now. That just kind of there, there's at least something there and sound with Sound Exchange, right? Mm-hmm. With the, which with the digital streaming and the satellite radio and stuff, you get you get a hit on satellite radio, kind of like selling records. So a couple of gold plaques on the wall here, but there's you know it's 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 rare now that, you know, people are coming to me with, uh, I do an album goes gold or platinum, do an album back in the day, back in the nineties and early two thousands, man. It was like constantly, it's like, Oh, Oh, that record went gold. Great. You know, or, or here, here's a plaque for you. Oh, okay. Uh, throw it over there with the rest of them. <laughs> now it's like, you know, I've watched gold go from 50,000 units to 40,000 units. And now I'm thinking like, it should be more at like 25,000 units should be gold, you know, for, for, yeah. so, cause it just, you know, no one's selling physical anymore. So, and that used to be where your royalties were. Right. Mm-hmm. So now if no one's selling physical, what's the point of the whole producer points? And unless you're working with Adele and you know, she's going to sell a half a million uh, records out of the gate, then amazing. But yeah, now it's like, you know, I, I just have standard, standard point structure and, I don't worry about it too much. So, yeah, it's a good point. It just like the industry is changing. So it is the, the way producers work and charge has to change with that. Absolutely, man. Yeah, you know, and it's like it's it's not it's not fair for me to be like, well, because nobody sells records, I want six points now instead of three. <laughs> you know, it's like it just same thing. It's just you look you look greedy. You look greedy. You look like you're about the money, and it's not about the art, and it's not about working with the band, and 
and, and helping them create something, you know, and, and uh, I've always loved the creative process. I think that's one of the, the cool things about being a producer is you're involved in that creative process. Um, you know, mixing's a little different. Mixing's like like every other step of the state way. Mixing is a, is an opinion, and it's your opinion on on the tracks and where they should sit and the levels and the EQ and the drum reverb and all that other stuff. The vocal sound, the vocal effect. It's your opinion, and uh, you know either the band's gonna love it or they're not gonna love it, man. So. <laughs> So uh, yeah, very true. I've had some bands be like, "Won't wouldn't change a thing," and other bands be like, "You totally missed the mark. This is nothing like we wanted." So you know, you go back and retool things, and in the end, everybody's happy, right? So well, a lot of times that's just about having conversations ahead of time, and and everybody being on the same page and everything too, right? Yeah, hundred percent, man. A lot, but a, a, a lot of times I won't get that. Like a lot of times there'll be like stuff that's just sent to me to mix. You're like, hey man, can you do a mix of this? And you'll listen to it and be like, all right, well, this is what I'm thinking. Luckily, I've been on the mark most of the times, but you know, there's been the odd time where it's like, yeah, we love this. Don't really like the drum sound though. Are you trying to do anything before people send you work to manage those expectations? Like, are no, you usually ask like the manager or whatever, or the artist, usually get on, hop on an email and be like, hey, awesome, love the track. Is there anything you're hearing? You know, and sometimes they'll be like no just do what you do or they'll be like yeah I, I love the sound of that big rec album ghost and they'll say a certain song i'm like okay try and incorporate some of those vibes into the mix but uh yeah no generally i just do what i do and, and i've been lucky enough to get stuff that's you know professionally recorded and produced i receive it in the tracks it's all kind of laid out for me you know and it's just a matter of making it sound big or uh pump a certain way yep well, I think that that's part of it too, right? Like a producer is going to have that vision during the recording phase and everything to really help make it work in the mix. Like they wanted these like gang vocals that are going to be huge and whatever. They're going to they're record it that way most for the most part, right? You know, whereas when you're sent stuff, like I hear that from a lot of students all the time, like they'll take one of my courses and then they'll, they'll see some of the multitracks and they'll be like, oh shit, like I never thought that I could record the instruments the way i want them to sound on the mix kind of the, and it's like, kind of the whole point yeah, of recording yeah that's yeah of course like that's, that's kind of the point right yeah like i think a lot of people just think well if i get basic r guitar drums vocal done then like in the mix i can fix it but you know when you can actually map out where things should be in the mix you can record it that way as well so 100 percent. it's uh you know there's no real, uh, I can't say there's no real trick to mixing, but uh, you have to make the song work within the mix or through the mix. So sometimes I'll be given a bunch of tracks and for whatever reason, they've zeroed everything for me thinking it's going to help. So now I have to listen to the rough mix and figure out what they've been listening to for the last month or two weeks or whatever. You sort of use the rough mix as a bit of a guide, right? Because chances are that rough mix is sort of what they wanted. Yeah, they just want it more polished. Yeah, they just wanted, you know, they, they, they want to hear the vocal bit clearer and, uh, you know, the overall EQ drums a little punchier, that kind of that, that kind of thing. And sometimes I feel like when you listen to those rough mixes too, if, especially if they were done by the band, you can kind of tell who like the band leader is through those mixes, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and that's like, that's your point person. That's who you deal with from that point going forward, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely, man. You can, you can hear like, the, oh, the guitars are always really loud. This guy wants yeah. those loud in the mix. You know, it's the guitar player. It's guitar always player did guitar the, player or the singer. Guitar player did the rough mix. <laughs> yeah, but, but uh, no, I, I generally try and make the song work through the mix. And uh, like I said, I, I put my opinion on it because that's all it is. The whole 
the whole production process is, is opinions. It's the, the producer's opinion on how the song should go and the elements in the song, the engineer's opinion on, on the detailing of the recording, uh, the mixer's opinion on where the levels and the EQ should be and the mastering guy's opinion on the overall loudness. And, you know, like it's, it's, it's like a bunch of different opinions uh, throughout the whole process. And, uh, you know, uh, sometimes one guy's opinion doesn't work. And, uh, you know, if, if that's the case, then you, like I've, I've worked on projects where we've, we've sent it off to a mixer and it came back nothing like we wanted it, even though all the tracks were laid out a certain way and, you know, just, there, just something didn't work. The song didn't work with what the guy did. And then you say, send the exact same thing, exact same session to another guy and it comes back exactly how it should be. Mm-hmm. So it's like, you know... Yeah, you're right. It's just all about opinions and, and just keeping lines of conversation going, you know, and, and everybody communicating what the vision is so that people can be on board. And, and I think to that point of like sending it off to somebody who does the complete opposite thing of what you're looking for, that's just a matter of like really like managing those expectations early, communicating, saying this is what we're going for so that that way you can find the right person for those things, right? That's the reason oh, yeah, why people 100%. hire you is because they know what your productions are going to sound like. So you know, they, they'll go to you because they'll say, hey, we're trying to do this. Can you do that? Yes or no? Yes. If yes, then we're working with you. If no, we, we look for someone else. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, I, and that, that's basically it. You know, it's, it's usually something that they've heard that I, I've done that appeals to them. And, uh, and I get a call to work with them or at least talk to them and start a dialogue about working together. Yeah. And that's, that's basically where it starts because, uh, you know, once you open up the dialogue uh, between you and the artist, you'll know right there and then, and the artist will know right there and then through that initial conversation, whether or not it's going to work, mm-hmm. you know, whether or not your ideas or the, vi- if you guys are on the same page or not. Right. Yeah. So, you know, uh, le- luckily, uh, the artists who have approached me to do things, we've kind of been on the same page. I kind of, you know, listen to their track. I kind of get where, what they're trying to go for and we, and we work on it. And, you know, once everything's like, yeah, this is go, we, we like this, they send me some songs. And if it's a production thing, then, uh, you know, I offer what I feel my opinion on the arrangement and parts should be. And if there's something that I feel needs to be rewritten, I let them know, be like, you know what, this, you love your whole song, the chorus is terrible. Mm-hmm. Or the chorus needs to, I would never say terrible, but <laughs> the chorus needs to be better. It needs to be at the same level, the verses. The verse and the pre-chorus are amazing. The chorus needs to be as good or better than those. Yeah. Uh, maybe, maybe you can go back into the rehearsal room and, and try something. And if they're like, well, what should we do? Then I'll, I'll offer some ideas. Like maybe try this or, or, you know, uh, maybe start on, start on the, the, the root chord instead of starting on the four chord, you know, or the, like, I don't know, whatever, whatever mm-hmm. I think it needs, man. It's mostly with lyrics and vocal melodies are, are uh, the things I've been finding lately that have been, people are just sort of throwing together, you know, and, uh, it's mostly younger artists and stuff, and I feel it's not as refined. They're trying to get it out. They want to. They want to get recording. They want. Oh, if we can just get this out, you know. Yeah. So. Well, it's it's funny with with vocalists too, because or whoever is writing the lyrics, because for a lot of those people, it's like them. the The idea behind like writing lyrics is like you're you're expressing emotions, you're telling a story, that kind of thing. So there's like this kind of fine line of, hey man, your lyrics 
really suck versus like, and like not offending their emotional baggage that comes along with whatever lyrics those are, you know, you know, there's, there's kind of, you have to tread that line. <laughs> oh no, a hundred percent, man. And I think that's, a, that's the biggest mistake, especially with younger bands is the, uh, what they fail to, or what gets sort of lost in the whole writing process I find is uh, the ability to communicate your what you want to say with the general public thinking that they're going to get it right away you know and it's it's like it's you know it's it's definitely a craft man being able to uh express word and melody together in a song that resonates with people outside of your own band or yourself you know that's yeah. that's sort of the trick that's kind of kind of what it's kind of what great artists and, and uh great songwriters do that they have the ability to do that they have the ability to connect with people through song. And, uh, you know, part of the song is the lyrics. So, yep. uh, you know, I find a lot of, a lot of people just kind of throw shit together. Oh, well, the guy from the Pixies said he never, you know, uh, you know, Black Francis never, ever, he always wrote lyrics at the very end. Yeah, but that's like a special, that's a, a that's one guy. Some people are better know? at it than others. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. And, and he was lucky enough to say some cool shit that, people identify yeah. with you know and like, it's funny too because i think that when it comes to lyrics that some of the best songs out there have the simplest sounding lyrics but often often like the simplest sounding lyrics aren't really that simple to craft yeah. like it, it takes it takes thought it takes like it, to tap into those those emotions and stuff like that like that it, it takes effort you know well, especially in the context of a song you know hmm. like it's it's like you know you, you can you can kind of put it you you can simplify all you want and stuff, but is it right for the song and what you're trying to, the message you're trying to have come across? And, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, I think that's what separates the, uh, the good artist from the great artist. Yeah. There's no rules or guidelines to it. It's, it's really the craft of doing it. So mm-hmm. guys who know how to craft, uh, craft songs and melody and words, like chords, melody, and words together, where uh, people get it. It's hard, man. Like, and otherwise, I, otherwise, I would do it. Yeah, you know. And, like, <laughs> and I think that it kind of ties back to what you were saying earlier about like just your story and and becoming an engineer and and really like putting in those long hours, like working your ass off. Like, I feel like when it comes to people's art, they don't spend enough time working on that. You know, they, they just, they just say, oh, it's art, whatever comes to me naturally, that's what it is. But it's like to get really good at your craft, you need to work at it. You need to challenge yourself and try to break things and and figure out what works and what doesn't. And, uh, you know, I I think that that's, that's huge when it comes to songwriting. Uh, I agree a hundred percent, man. You you have to, uh, sometimes you have to get out of your comfort zone to find out what really works. And, and I think there's there's a lot of artists uh, get complacent, you know, uh, that, that classic line of, you have your whole life to write your first album and 10 months to write your second one. You really see, you really see the, uh, who the true artists are, you know, like, yeah. uh, the, the, the guys who are well, not true artists, but just the guys who can, who have the ability to kind of just pump it out like that. For sure. you know, it's, it's, uh, it's hard, man. It's, it's like, you know, that, that follow up record for most artists suck. <laughs> and it's because they're on tour and they're uh, in in a bit of a kind of comfort zone where they're with their band and well, let's kind of try and do what excuse me what we did last time and 
why isn't this working or, yeah. or, you know, it's, or, or, or they, they do the opposite. They, they like, uh, so they, what, whatever they had working on the first album, they do the complete, you know, 180 on the, on the next one. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, and it's like, what do you, what is this? Yep. You know, like go back and do, go back and write me another this, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and some, sometimes that's what ends up happening where they're like, Oh shit. We got so wrapped up in trying to outdo ourselves that we've kind of lost that connection with our fans and they don't really, the, the things they liked about us, we're not doing now on this record. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, like you said, man, it's, it's, it's tough, tough to, to know what is, really is going to work. But I, I feel I've been lucky enough, um, that, uh, I feel I, I know I hear, uh, I know a great song when I hear it, or I know a great part when I hear it. Yep. And, uh, I use my instincts a lot. If something's, if something's not resonating with, with me right away, I usually tell the artist that something, I'm, I don't get this, explain it more. Or what are you trying to tell me here? Mm-hmm. And cause maybe I'm just missing the boat. Maybe I got so much shit going on. Other, other things around me going on that I'm, I'm kind of missing the, the main point here. So sometimes, I'll, sometimes I'll have them explain it to me. And if I get it, I'm like, oh yeah, okay, fuck, I should have should have totally got that. Or if it's still not, I still don't get it. I've really pushed it for them to either change it or, or refine it. You know? Yeah, for sure. And uh, because I, I feel like I'm a guy who gets music. Someone who just listens to music for the pure enjoyment of it. If they have to sit there and figure it out, they're just gonna hit skip. You know, they're gonna or they're gonna move on to another playlist or they're gonna mm-hmm. another song, and you're kind of dead in the water at that point, right? Yeah. So circling back to kind of what we were talking about earlier about how, you know, when you're looking for someone to work with, you're going to try to find the people that get the sounds you're after and all that kind of stuff. One thing uh, that one quality of your productions that I find really fascinating is the guitar tones. Like I, I always feel that you have these extremely tight, amazing, huge sounding guitars and it, like the Billy talent, ex- the Billy talent record is, is a good example for me where I feel everything is super tight. And almost to the point where, like, you don't even hear, like, finger noise against the strings and that kind of stuff. I was wondering if you can maybe describe how you typically track your guitars and how you get them sounding so tight. Well, we, uh, we, we use multiple amps is a, is, is a big part of the trick. And uh, so we'll usually have a, a main guitar and a double and then a, sort of a quad and a double, but they're sort of doing different things. The main guitar is doing the usually the full voicing of the, of Ian's chord and the, uh, the quad guitars, um, or like the bigger guitars are usually doing the, uh, root five octave of the chord. Uh, so like just, just the lower strings. And, um, we use different amps, different, uh, amp combinations. Uh, we do everything like we 57, 421, on on every cabinet and we uh switch out cabs as far as the speakers we like to use we we generally like the vintage 30s and the um greenback slushes like the 25s we kind of blanket everything off man we like each cab has its own sort of cubby hole that which is all foamed out we bought this crazy uh acoustic foam and we each amp has its own cubby hole so it's there's no bleed. Um, no, yeah, no bleed, no nothing, man. So, and, and we, we really, um, we really dial in like, uh, each amp, uh, does a certain thing within that sound, you know, uh, the, like the, uh, 
the Fender amp will be more of the the tone, like the uh, the the chord tone, and the uh, Marshall will be more of that Marshall air. Yeah. So, are you saying that you use all of those amps together at the same time, or is it just that like you do your main guitar on the Fender and then you move to the Marshall for the the quads and that stuff? Oh no no no, we're, we're running them all at the same time. Got it. And then and the, for like for the main tone, we'll we'll run at the most three amps, but usually we keep it down to two amps. So like a Fender and a Marshall or a Fender and a Comet. Um, and we always, we always use the Fender, man. That's the, that's the thing that seems to be Ian's sound. That's, it works with what he does. It, it really handles his voicings really well. And it, it's also him. Like it's, it, he, his guitar playing is really like, it's tight, man. Like the way he attacks the strings and the way he, it's, it's, he's really got a thing, man. There's no, no other, like I've been lucky enough to work with great guitar players in my time, but you know, him, Ian DeSaw has, uh, has a thing, man, that I've never seen with any <laughs> other guitar player. Yeah. I was, I was curious, like, are you guys recording like section by section kind of thing or note by note with his stuff? Cause it just sounds so extremely tight. Like it's always, you always get that attack at the beginning of every note. That just sounds super consistent. Yeah. Yeah, no, a lot of that is him, man. Um, like, yeah, we'll, we'll we'll basically go like say say we're recording the uh, the course, all right? And yeah, we will we'll, we will do section by section because he's remember he's using, he's doing distorted jazz chords, punk rock style, man. Mm-hmm. So for him to change to to nail all those chord hand changes, position changes, all in one pass is next to impossible for anybody to do. So. We'll have him do a pass, and we'll just go in and be like, "Ah, that chord's out, that chord's out," and then we'll just punch those chords. Got it. And and uh, and you know, some sometimes in a pass, he out of the five chords, he got two of them, and we got to punch three. You know, and then out of, you know the for the double, maybe he got four of the five, and we got to punch the one. Right. So it's it's uh it it, it yeah it gets a little punchy, but it's impossible for somebody to with those voicings to, to literally nail it all in one, <laughs> in one pass, man. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, there, there's definitely punching that goes along, but a lot, but the actual sonic part of it, the sound and the attack, that's all him, man. That's like, he hit, like we spent time picking strings. We did shootouts with strings, um, finding what the best string is for the voicings picks. Like even the pick, man, we have like six different picks lined up for any part. So we go through and we do a, basically a blind taste test of all the, the different picks. And it's like that one, the attack sounds the best on that one. And then we, we literally look for the part on the guitar where the voicing reads the best, where he's strumming. So it's like, it's, it, it might sound like a little bit like math, uh, uh, math rock or, you know, like a little bit too mathy, but uh, he is very particular about how he wants the guitar tone to come across and you know we got to work a little harder at it in places, but at the end of the day, it translates well. And anyone who, when a Billy Talent song comes on and they hear the guitars, they automatically know it's Ian and Billy Talent. Yeah. So uh, you know it's it's a signature sound, and and he's spent years refining it. And uh, like I said, man, there's he is just one of those guys. Like I can't say enough about his guitar playing and his writing uh, and. His, produ- his production style and everything, man. He's just, he's just one of the, he's just one of those dudes, man. He, he knows how to do it all. He's got great ears 
and uh, and I, I really respect him as a musician, a producer, and a songwriter. Man, he's 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 got it all, and I've learned a ton of hit from. Well, together actually, we we sort of figured a lot of this stuff out, but um, I've learned a lot about recording guitars and the way certain amps and certain cones and certain uh, cabs react together. Mm -hmm. Well, I love that you're breaking it down like element by element to get those because, yeah, again, that's another thing that I think a lot of amateur mixers don't consider is how everything down from the the player the pick the strings the guitar the amp the cables like all that stuff oh yeah influences the sound so if you're trying to get your vision across you need to consider every single step along the way oh yeah you, you might say we're a little bit anal about it but otherwise it's not like it doesn't sound right to us when we're recording the stuff so like we 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 break it down to that detail man and, and we do even with the amps and, and the guitars uh you know, we do, we will go through six to 10 guitars um, to find out what fits the song right and what, where the voicing sound good. We call it the blind taste test. We'll, we'll, he'll, he'll do a pass and we'll have the, uh, the, the Pro Tools operator run it back to us and we'll, we'll write down like, oh, six was great. Oh, five was not so good. <laughs> Two was the, my favorite. And then him and I will compare notes. And, you know, a lot of times we're on the same page. We're like, yeah, two, we both had, we both had two every time. Let's, let's go with two. Oh, two was the, uh, Telecaster or the Les Paul or this. So it's, it's, yeah, people call it anal, I guess, but I call it detailing, man. I, I, we pay attention, we pay huge attention to detail when we're recording, uh, Billy Talent records. Well, it, it just makes it, it just the end product better because you've taken that into consideration. You've prepped it for the mix the way you want it to sound. Way better. It's 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 uh, it's the vision of the band, and it's what they want. You know, it's 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 exactly that's how a Billy a Billy Talent album sounds the way it does because that's how we do it. You know, that's that's our method to recording guitars, recording bass. We have a you know certain way we do it. Same thing with drums. You know, we mm-hmm. uh, we we don't just throw up the drum kit and go. That's the whole album. You know, we're changing snare drums, cymbals, hi hats. You know, there's, it, it's never the same kit per song ever you know it's yeah. it's you know we might be like oh yeah well i think the snare drum from that from song the song three songs ago will work great with this you know and we'll try it out but we'll, st- we'll still try everything out mm-hmm. um we always use our ears which is what we should do and, and we always do what's best for the song of course yeah. never what you know it's always do what's best sonically what's best for the song and that's that's what I absolutely love about working with that guy, man. Uh, I'm I'm totally the same way, almost to a fault where some bands don't like that. They're like, well, can't we just get up and go? And I'm like, well, don't you? I got I got 14 guitars here. Don't you want to try them all? No, <laughs> like, <laughs> like no. Pick a guitar for me that you think would be good, and then let's record. So it, it's all you know, this is all like one big conversation of just like have patience and yeah. work at it and take everything element by element and develop your craft. And even to the point of developing each song, like getting your tones and, and all of that, it all does take time. And if you're rushing through things, that's when things start to get sloppy. Yeah. It, it's fun. same with big wreck, man. We are, it's Ian, Ian Thornley and I are the exact same way. We will literally go through, uh, you know, pick, you'll pick up, you go, Oh, this, this, this guy here will be, we'll, we'll do the trick and we'll go in when, you know, we'll mess around with the amps a bit 
eh, no, maybe not that amp. Then you know, do a pass. No, this is the wrong guitar. Let's try this one. He is in a completely other universe as far as guitar players go. I've never experienced anyone like him before. I have never ever gone through a full pass of a song and then doubled it and not heard a bad note with that guy. <laughs> it's it sometimes makes me sick to my stomach. Yeah, he's an incredible guitar player. I've seen him play a few times, and it's just every time I see it, it's flawless. Yeah, it's like how 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 is that? But you ever if you if you ever meet and shake his hand. It's like shaking a, a baseball mitt. It's, it, but the softest baseball mitt you've ever it's, – it's crazy, man. And he's got the softest hands, but it's, it's like he makes it look so effortless, man. And you're like, what the F is going on here? That's the true sign of a great guitar player. Just shake their hands and if it's a baseball mitt. It, it is. It's, it's, like, it's, it's, just, it's like, a, like a basketball player or something. You know, like a guy's got – or a hockey player. Like a – same thing, you know, a guy like who's got great hands, great goal scorer, great hands, you shake their hand, it's like the soft baseball mitt. It's like <laughs> weird. But I, so I kind of attribute that. I, it's something I, it's something I kind of noticed but with uh, Ian Thornley. But yeah, he's uh, same thing, you know, the, working with a guy like that or Ian DeSaw, you almost got to take your music Wheaties in the morning before you go into the studio with those guys because they are usually – 10 steps ahead of you. So I got to stay 11 steps ahead of them just to be on the same level as them. And it's, it's hard, man. It's some, sometimes going through like, even like I'm working with Ian, Ian Thornley right now, you know, watching him lay down guide tracks with these songs and, and like, you know, grabbing the guitar and just strumming a G chord and realizing, Oh my God, he is in some crazy effed up tuning that I'm not even going to begin to guess what this is. But, you know, he's he's rolling up and down the neck like it's, you know, like it's it's nothing. So, uh, yeah, there's definitely definitely a lot of people ask about my guitar sound. Like, how do you get that guitar sound? A lot of it is is in the artist, you know. A lot of the a lot of it is the guy playing the guitar. I definitely have a part in in, in the flavors I put up as far as microphones and mic pre's and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and and the the balance of the uh, combined amps, but you know, at the end of the day, man, it's like you get a guitar sound up, have Ian DeSaw play the chords and then pass the guitar to me and have me play the same chords. It's going to sound totally different. You know, mm -hmm. it's, it's all, it's all in the guy playing it. That is 75% of the sound is the guy playing the guitar and I'm the other 25%. So, <laughs> and I, I'm not even that I'm, I'm the 10% and the gear is the other 15%. So it's, uh, yeah, it's. Uh, I've been I've been very fortunate and lucky to work with such great artists that make me look great. So, um, or make me. Say, I always tell them, I'm like, man, you're making me sound so good right now. <laughs> yeah, for sure. It helps to have great musicians, and it really does. Like, it, 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 again, it's like it's like you you talked about it at the very beginning of that horn section coming in and having those pros come in versus the bass player at school. Yeah. You know, it's, it's <laughs> they true. make your life easier. Like it, it really does help make everything sound better when you have people who already come in with a sense of what tones they want, how to dial it in, how they play those parts. Like that all makes more sense. Whereas when you're first getting started and you don't know a thing about what kind of amps to use or what tone to dial in, that kind of stuff, it, everything just takes longer and it's sloppier because you kind of like want to get through the process, but you don't, you know, like you're kind of always refining your process as you go along and but when you work with those guys that know what they're doing it, it makes things move way faster and and or, or more efficiently at least it, it really does man and and uh i hate to keep going back to those two guys but uh 
you know, the Ian's in my life have really reinforced that it's, it's all, it's all in the hands and it's all in the song too. You know, it's like, those guys are also great songwriters, you know, a, a, a great sounding snare drum or guitar on a shitty song is still a shitty song. You know, uh, a shitty sounding uh, snare drum on a great song. It's a great song and nobody cares about the snare. I've never heard a snare go number one before in my life. You know, it's, <laughs> it's not the snare sound that went number one. It's the song and the artist performing the song that goes number one. So, um, you know, luckily, uh, a part of that was the, the, the people, the people involved, uh, knew what to do with it and help guide the band or the artists to produce or make that recording the way it was, you know, and, and, uh, it, it's just a bunch of things aligning together that make it all work. And anyone who's listening going, gee, oh, man, how did they get, you know, I, I have a Fender and a Marshall at home. And I'm running greenbacks and vintage 30s and and a 52 Tele reissue. How come I can't get the same guitar sound as Billy Talent? Well, <laughs> because you're not Ian DeSaw, you're not writing the same songs, and you know he's like I said, you, maybe you're not 100 percent sure about the method we use, even though I just told you the method. Yeah. I talk a lot about that when it comes to mixing in general and just using reference tracks because I think there's a lot of guys that when they get to that mixing phase and they don't have the chance to re-record things, you know, they listen to these other reference mixes and are like, well, how do I get that exact same guitar tone or snare sound or whatever? And it's like, unless you were in the room recording it with like the same gear and the same player and same everything, you're, you're not going to get that. You can get similar sonics, but you're not going to get that exact same no. thing. No. And it's, it's like, like you said, I've, I've had a, I've literally had people you're like, I'm working with this band right now. They're, kind of Billy Talent-esque and we love the Billy Talent songs and we love the sound of the Billy Talent guitars. Just please tell me what you're using and what you're doing. And I tell them everything. Oh, I'm like, yeah, we're using this, 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 and this. And we record it all like this, this, and this. And you know, the, the light bulb goes off. They're like, Oh, perfect. Now I know. And they come back to me a week later going, yeah, it didn't work. I'm like, yeah, of course, of course it didn't work. If you really want it to work, call <laughs> Ian to saw and have him come yep. down and play on your track. And then it'll sound like Billy Talent. It's all connected together. And uh, you know what? Start with just writing an amazing song and take it from there. You know, it, like I think artists don't give themselves enough credit anymore and they're, they're chasing things or they want to be like this guy or they, you know, it's, it's great to be influenced by stuff, but you always got to be yourself. And I think being yourself and doing what you do will come ac always come across better uh, than try to be somebody else. And I, that's the thing I always try and say to bands who, who come and work with me and they're like, oh man, can you get us that big rec guitar sound? It's like, well, I can point you the directions on what we used. Like I can use the same stuff, but ultimately, you know, you're playing guitar and they're different mm -hmm. songs. Yeah, it, it's like to develop your sound, you need to take influence from a bunch of people and figure out what works best for you. And, and that's, and that's, the very reason why I even have this podcast in the first place is just to get people to hear differences of opinions and different experiences. And, you know, when you tell a story about how you recorded Billy Talent, like someone's going to try that and they might they might find, oh, wait a minute, like that's something I never have even thought about before. And that might become part of their way of production. And they're not going to get the exact same sounds as you, but they're going to learn something from it. So just really to, to form your own sound and your own vibe in the studio, it, it just really requires all these different influences and, and just practicing. 
Yeah. yeah. Well, I learned this. I like, I didn't come up with this stuff myself. I, I learned this from other people. Like the multiple amp thing, there was at phase one, they had this thing called the guitar box, which that's what it did. It was a guitar splitter. Uh, so you could run uh, multiple amps at the same time. Jack Richardson had it made, uh, had the tech make it for him so that they could do stuff like that. Or I don't know if it's for running amps at the same time or just being able to have the amp set up and just switch really quickly. But I'm sure, like engineers, got gluttonous in the day, and we're like, "Yeah, man, let's let's let's, re- let's record two marshals at the same time." Yeah, I, I remember Jack showing me that box that he had made for him, and uh, it blew my mind. It was like I never thought of that before. No, I like I honestly, man, and I, I didn't think anything of it. Like I didn't. I, that's how I used it originally. I used it. I was like, "Well, we're just gonna put all these amps up, and so I don't have to go and change crap, like run cables and stuff." I'm gonna just run everything through the guitar box here. And that's what we did. And then I, I forget, I think it was like a sacrifice record or, or some record I was working on. Some, some uh, Scarborough metal record. The, the guitars came up and it was like huge and we couldn't figure out what the hell was going on. And my assistant had had like three of the channels firing at the same <laughs> By time. Accident or and something. we were like, holy shit, that sounds great. Let's just record this. And that's what we did, man. And, uh, from then on, I was like, yeah, multiple amps. That's a definitely a cool idea, man. Cool idea. So I started doing it more and more and more. Uh, I started doing work in this band, Big Sugar, and we started doing that. I showed, showed him the whole thing. He was like, what? I can run what? We can what? So he, he loved it, man. So he would have his wall of marshals. Then we on one album, we got into the, the, the baby fenders, like the pro juniors. I remember we had like six pro juniors firing at once with different pedals and it was it was crazy, man. But uh, that's awesome. So, are you kind of are you tracking it so that like one amp is really clean, one's really dirty, that kind of thing, or are they all kind of shooting for a similar tone? No, I definitely I definitely try and uh, have the amps do. Uh, I try and have the each amp fill a hole in the sound. So I, I'll usually have a very saturated amp, you know, like a scoopy. Uh, depending on depending on the band I'm working with, like if it's more of like a heavy rock band like American active rock kind of thing. I'll have like a, a, a very scoopy, you know, a diesel or a, a 5150 kind of sound going. And then I'll have a Marshall for that classic kind of sound. And then I'll usually sneak like a Fender in there, uh, like a, a, a Fender. I have a 65 Fender basement. I also have a, a 61 uh, Fender Tremlux that I'll, I'll sneak in there for the actual, just the note value. You know, and and uh, and I'll I'll blend them and just send them all to one track. That's it. So I I, I you know I rarely and so you're you're you are committing. Oh yeah, man. Because <laughs> if it's wrong, I'll just record it again, or or I'll or I'll, I usually take a di. Uh, I I run a di into the Avalon, which is I I feel is the cleanest, uh, cleanest, most true uh, di box, a U five to uh, to capture the 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 di part of the guitar and then if i miss the mark on the actual guitar sound like later we're building stuff it's like yeah man these guitars are too distorted or too this i'll go in and i'll just reamp it with the di so i don't have to have the guy play it again and yeah it, it, nine times out of ten nine times out of ten uh it works great uh the other one time it's just probably a performance thing or a part thing and we just got to redo the part so so to tie it to mixing as well what is your mindset when you go into a mix? Like, how do you start? Where do you start? Obviously, if you're 
recording it from the sounds of it, you know, you're already planning things ahead of time and, and working as you go. But when you're taking someone else's stuff, where do you start typically? First thing I do is I listen to the rough mix. If there's a rough mix, which there usually is, I listen to the rough mix. And then I, I kind of balance before I like EQ or anything else. I balance uh, the, the track. I just throw everything up and just do a, a, a balance mix of everything. So it's all sitting properly where I want it. And then I'll kind of go in and start shaping things. I'll turn, I'll crank it really loud on the big speakers. I find like the loudest part, like the chorus, I'll dime it just to make sure it feels it's hitting me right. And then once I have that sort of established and set, uh, and my general, uh, moves, move done, like my, my first pass done, uh, I will go in and I turn, I mix really quiet. Like if the air conditioning's on, it's bothering me. That's how quiet I mix. <laughs> because balance is the most important thing in a mix. Uh, well, one of the most important things. If the balances are right, people aren't too worried about the, oh, the, the snare is a little too bright. Or, you know, can we have a little more air on the cymbals? Like that stuff is, isn't as important unless like, like if, if the vocal is not sitting right and it's buried or the kick drum disappears, that's a problem. So I always try and make sure the balances are all, all really good. And then from there, I just kind of, you know, sit there and, you know, oh, maybe a little more high end on the cymbals. Yeah, that sounds good. You know, it's, it's, same thing. It's all opinion. In my opinion, I think it needs a little more high end on the cymbals. So I'll do that. How long does it normally take you to finish a mix then? Well, if it's, if it's somewhere like, a, it's like, say, like a punk rock album where, it's, where everything's kind of similar, I can mix a song an hour. Like once, once the, the once once the template is done. Once once I have the general template. Uh, uh, but the first first song is usually I don't know. It usually takes me like four four or five hours to get it, and then I'll you know do the do the balancing for another hour or two. And it it all depends, man. It all depends on how crafty I I, I, I want to get with the tune. If it's if it's a situation where it's inspiring me, and I'm like, oh, I, it'd be great to try a stop here. Or uh, I want to do a crazy delay throw in here, like tricks and stuff like that. Then, yeah, you know, sometimes it'll take me a day to do the mix. Yeah. So then how do you know when you're done a mix? Because you could be tweaking forever. Oh, yeah. Fuck. I, I, I force myself. I'm, I'm like, stop. You're stop. And, and I, I print a ref. I send it to my phone. I listen to it on, on my phone with my earbuds and then I'll listen to it on my computer with like, uh, with my Grados or my, uh, Sony's or whatever, like better, better headphones. And then I'll make, usually make a couple, couple adjustments like, Oh shit, those background vocals are like way louder than I was hearing them down low. So, uh, you know, I'll make a few adjustments, then I send it out and then, you know, like comments usually come back and it's usually not cr anything crazy. You know, it's like, Oh, um, you know, more background vocals, <laughs> shit like that. <laughs> it's like, okay. I think the background vocals are sitting fine. You want more? Great. Here you go. Here's more background vocals. I don't know. It's it's tough. Like back in the day, I used to get a lot of comments about stuff, and now it's not as much. You know, like just and, and why shit. do you think that is? Do you think it's like a matter of how you approach your work? Yeah, now? I is think it... this is balancing, man. Making sure the balances are all right, and uh, you know, having a good rough mix, and and hearing what they've been hearing, and you know, like putting the odd little special thing, and there's a nice delay throw here, making the vocal sound great. It's all around the vocal. Yeah, You know, like the vocal is always the loudest thing in the mix, unless it's requested that it's not, or it needs to be quieter. But um, I usually do everything around the vocal, all the effects, all the moves. So once I get my general balances, I go and I ride the vocals, background vocals and lead vocals. And then I just tweak from there, like, oh, a little guitar move here. But I don't really do a lot of moves. Like there's not really a lot of moves. Once it's all sitting and, and hitting the compressor right, and the, uh, the general EQ on the two mix is sitting properly, 
it's it's not really a lot to do, man. Like I used to do a lot, and then when uh, when I went down and uh, Crystal Algae mixes all the Billy Talent records, and when I went down to 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 basically hang out with in the mix. I noticed he wasn't really doing much. And I also noticed he mixed very quiet. Like I would walk by the room and he would be in there. I'd be like, what's he doing? Taking a nap. I look in there and he's <laughs> mixing and I can't fucking hear anything coming out. I'm like what the <laughs> hell is going on? And I'd, you know, watch the SSL screen up there and you know, there's, there's slight moves happening, but it's mostly like effects, vocal effects and you know, like mm-hmm. things that like things, things, certain things will come up in the chorus and certain things, the end of the song, certain things come up and, it's like, oh, yeah, he's building excitement through, you know, ma- making sort of scene changes throughout the mix, right? So mm-hmm. I think that that's really interesting because I, I know a lot of the guests that I've had on here and a lot of other engineers I talk to that are on the mailing list and all that stuff, like everyone always references CLA and, and like he's amazing, right? And so it, it, it's funny to hear that, you know, he's he's barely doing anything and that he mixes quiet and like that he works quick. And, and I think that that just goes to show that, you know, th- there are, there's a million things you could do to a mix, but at the at the core of it all, it's like, what is going to make it sound best for the song? Yeah. And you don't need to go all out experimenting and trying all sorts of stuff, because when you do that, you start to lose focus. You do. Well, well, he is, he is the one who told me, make the song work with the mix. That's all you got to do when mixing. Because uh, the first time I went down and never met him, we were working on Billy Talent 2. And uh, I was mixing the B-sides in another studio in uh, Burbank. The second day of, the, of my mixing session, my assistant comes running down the hall. He's like, holy fuck, Chris Lord Algae's here. And I'm like, yeah? He goes, and he wants to see you. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and I look in the, the door of the control room, and there's CLA standing there. He goes, Eric. Play me what you got. And I'm like, oh, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> so he sits down, listens to my mix, listens to the whole thing patiently, doesn't say a word, and gets up. He goes, he goes sounds really great. However, your uh, the, the chorus is folding back on itself. I'm like, what? He goes, yeah, the, you're hitting the, the, the compressor. You're hitting the compressor too hard in the chorus. He goes, show me your two-mix chain. So I'm, I'm, I kind of sheepishly say, well, I'm kind of using your tomb exchange to a certain degree. I'm using the, the folks right red three on this, which I saw at your place the other day. And he goes, that he was, that's definitely the right compressor to use. So he goes, but you're using it wrong. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, Lord, tell me, please, Lord, tell me. So he goes, he goes here, he goes, do you mind if I set it up for you properly? And I'm like, yes, by all means. So he goes over, takes it out of, uh, takes it out of stereo mode. He goes, he goes, never run this thing in stereo mode, only run it in dual mono. Everything will sound wider and fatter. And he goes, and, uh, you're, put your attack maybe here and, uh, uh, you know, put, put the, maybe do auto release for this mix. Fucking does all that. Hit play again. Listen to the mix. It's huge. It's like, <laughs> Like literally in, in two minutes, Chris Lord Algae fixed my whole mix, but you know, to his credit, he was like, and, and you know, told me certain things about EQing and you know, it was, it was unbelievable, like mix life, mix changing experience for me. And then the, the worst part was I had to take now my mix and go play it in his studio in front of the band, which same thing sounded really good, but 
he goes, Eric, go back and take all the 5K off the guitars. He goes, don't look at what I'm doing here. He goes, just go use your ears. He goes, it's a little too chippy in the guitars. He goes, you already got bright guitars. You don't need all the top end. Went back, changed it, came back, listened to everything, sounded great. So it's like the guy was right on the money, man. And I'm, I'm like, I can't even, can't even tell you the, uh, the admiration and respect I have for that man. And, and just going down and mixing with the other Billy Talent records with him, I always learned something new. And he's uh, such a, he's so generous with uh, answering questions for you and stuff. He's just, like I said, man, all around a great guy. Uh, and, you know, it's all in the ears, man. Like, like I could literally... He could, we, him and I could mix the same song on his console and it would sound totally different. So it's all in what, all in how you hear it, you know? So anyway. Well, and I think your story definitely says something about the detail that he pays to like, just to like the fact that like stereo mode versus dual mono, like to, to most people, it's like, why should that make any difference at all? But <laughs> that little tweak, Holy like fuck. was, was he changing anything on, on the left or right? Or? No, nothing, man. He just, he was, he was like. He goes, trust me, run it in dual mono. He goes, I, he goes, I've always run mine in dual mono. It sounds bigger. And he did. And, and, uh, uh, I think the only thing he did was he backed off one on the compression, ran it in dual mono and put the, uh, the release in auto mode instead of, I had it just in a wide open. Right. Yeah. And, and, and changed my, change the attack. Basically. Yeah. Dialed the compressor in for me. So, uh, just through one listen, man, through one listen. And, and, that's crazy. and yeah, man, that's how, that's how insanely talented this guy is, how good his ears are, you know? And, and, uh, I started realizing, yeah, it's a lot about the two mix chain you have going on in the mix too. You know, some of it anyway, uh, to me, it was, it was one of the things I, I rarely did was have a, an experiment with the two mix chain. I usually had like, you know, a, two, a bus compressor and some, sometimes an EQ, but not all the time. But, uh, Randy Staub was the other guy. I remember mixing, uh, some, some Randy was mixing a mine. And uh, I'm, li- I'm listening to the song. It sounds like amazing. All of a sudden, like the sound, he, he hits a button in the center section and the sound r- literally falls to shit. And I'm like, what the fuck is going on? Pops a button back in. I turn to him and he points to the uh, Sontech EQ he's got on. And he turns and he's, yeah, man, the Sontech is the shit. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, holy fuck. What a difference, man. Like, so I started after that, I'm, I'm like in the experience of crystal algae. I was like, I got to start paying attention to my two mix chain, man. It's, it, yeah. it definitely makes a difference in, in, in the, the overall big picture of the mix. So CLA's got the, the focus, right? Randy's got the son, the Sontech. What's your secret weapon? Uh, I, I, mine changes a little bit, but the one thing that's always on, on the two mix is the, uh, I have a pair of Neves and followed by a pair of EAR, um, Esoteric Research uh, 660. So like fair, pair of Fairchilds, big tube compressors, man. And uh, and I don't compress with them. I just run it through. And then, you know, sometimes I'll use the Red. Sometimes I'll use my the Allen Smart. Sometimes I'll use the uh, compressor on the SSL. Sometimes I'll use both or all three. Depends. And uh, and lately I've been loving the uh, Curve Bender, the uh EMI TG for my EQ. Uh, sometimes I use the, the GML EQ. I love that as well. Or sometimes I'll use a, a Manly Massive Passive. I doubt, like all, most of those monster truck records, I, that's, that's the chain is the, the Neve, uh, EARs, Massive Passive, and um, uh, either Allen Smart or uh, the SSL compressor. And, and are you like, 
are you really like pushing into those things or like hitting them hard or are they just there to add an extra flavor? Yeah, they're just there to add a flavor. It's, it's like same thing. I just make it sit a certain way. I usually mix into it. Like the, uh, I, I kind of have a, like if it's the red or the SSL, I kind of have it set because I do the balance first, right? I'll balance it in first. And then once the balance is there, uh, I've, I realize I'm like, holy fuck, I'm hitting my, hitting, hitting the red too hard. So I'll just go in and, and, Take everything down in DB. So you start with everything on the two bus, oh, like yeah, right fine. away. Everything, yeah. EQ, everything. Like all, it's yep. all, all going to because like with the, with the TG or the uh, manly massive passive, they're they're fixed frequencies, right? So there's only so much you can. The, the GML is a little crazier because you can actually sweep through and find 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 sweet spots and stuff like that. But um, you know, generally I'm starting with like you know. Uh, two or three DB of like 20 K and then like some bottom. And then I'll usually find a mid mid range frequency, depending on what type of music it is. Like I'll either hit the eight K or I'll hit the three uh, K depending, you know, or sometimes I'll hit both. Just same thing. It's using, it's using your ears and it's your opinion. You know, I think, you know, the stuff I'm producing and mixing, um, I'm mixing as I'm tracking. So it's all, you know, I'm, I'm at Vespa and I'm mixing it while I'm tracking, I have my parallel bus going for the drums. You know, I, I sometimes have the two mix chain going, not all the time because I'm using some of the stuff sometimes, but, um, you know, it's like, yeah, I'm, I'm mixing while I'm tracking. And then when it comes to mix, it's pretty much mixed and it's pretty much, it's there, pretty yeah. much there balances yeah. and everything. So awesome. We should probably start to wrap up a little bit, but how can people learn more about what you're doing and how can they find you online and if they want to contact you or any of that? Unfortunately, I don't really have a huge online presence. Instagram is probably the, if, if you want to, if you want to see what I'm doing, I'm getting more into the Instagram thing. I'm erats70 and it's just Eric Rats for, uh, for my Facebook. Like I said, I don't really have a huge online presence. I'm, I'm usually working. So yeah, no, no problem. <laughs> cool. And uh, lastly, any cool projects that you're working on right now or that are going to be released shortly that you're excited about? Yeah, uh, definitely Arkell's coming up. Uh, the album gets released uh, October 19th. So stoked about it. And uh, Big Wreck, starting a new Big Wreck album. Super stoked about that, man. That's, uh, that's, uh, that's going to be great. I always love working with, uh, working with Ian Thornley. He's, uh, he's a monster and uh, uh, him and I just have a great time doing records together. And the other thing is uh, this band Hotel Mirror that I just finished working with, uh, going out in, uh, to Vancouver in January to work with them, do some more stuff. They're, a, they're kind of an up-and-coming indie band that you should watch out for. Really great singer, really great band, all really good musicians, and a pretty cool sound they got going on, man. So Hotel Mirror, check them out as well. Awesome. Will do, man. Well, thank you so much for being on here. I, th- I had a really fun time chatting Dude, with you. Dude, you're you awesome, cool man. Stories. Anytime. Anytime. <laughs> thank you. Anytime. Uh, this is great. Thanks for reaching out to me. Uh, I don't, I honestly, I generally don't do this kind of stuff. And uh, I went and checked out your podcast and I love it. So I was like, yeah, I'd love, I'd love to be a part of this. Awesome. Man. Thank so, you, man. So, uh, and, and best, best to you and all your listeners. And uh, ciao. Bye bye. So there you have it, guys. That was my interview with Eric Ratz. 
he's a really cool dude, and I love the stories that he had to share in this episode. Uh, I love the story that he told about Jack Richardson's guitar splitter and how uh, Eric uses it to record multiple amps at once to really shape the sound and, and get a very cool tone by combining different amps. Like I mentioned in the episode, I remember when Jack first showed me that box, and it really blew my mind because I just never even thought of doing something like that, but it really does produce some awesome results, and it's a lot of fun to experiment with. I also really like the story about his experience with Chris Lord Algae and how, you know, he just changed that one setting on the compressor and it made a big world of a difference. And I think that just goes to show you that when you really train your ears, um, sometimes the smallest details can make a world of a difference, right? So by training your ears to be able to identify the subtleties in your mixes, that's where you're going to start to notice some really big results. It could just be something as little as changing a button sometimes. And, and that example that he shared in this episode really does uh, demonstrate that quite well. So that was it, guys. I hope you really enjoyed that episode. I had a lot of fun talking with Eric. And um, if this is your first time listening to the Master Mix podcast, I'd love it if you can go visit MasterYourMix.com, and when you go to that website, you're going to get a little pop-up that says, sign up for the Ultimate Mixing Blueprint, which is a free guide to learning about using EQ and compression in your mixes, and all you got to do is just enter your email on the website and you'll be added to my mailing list. And that's really where I share a lot of my best content. So every week I try to send out new video tutorials, tips and tricks and new podcast episodes, whole bunch of stuff designed to help you with your mixes to get much better results and uh, do it from home as well, which is awesome. So make sure to check that out, masteryourmix.com and sign up for the ultimate mixing blueprint. Also, if you listen to this on iTunes or any of the other major podcast distributors out there, I would really appreciate it if you could go to their websites and leave a rating and a review for this podcast. It really helps us get exposed to more people and, uh, you know, the more I can help out people, the better. That's what I want to do with this podcast. And I really appreciate all of the love and support that you guys give. And on that note, if you have any questions that you'd love to have answered on this podcast, feel free to send me an email. I would love to be able to help you out. The email address is info at masteryourmix.com. Just shoot me an email asking your question and whether that's going to be answered by myself or any of the guests on the podcast, I'd love to try to give you a hand and help you out. That's what this is all about, right? So once again, the email address is info at masteryourmix.com. And other than that, I'll see you in the next episode. Take care, guys. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at masteryourmix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit masteryourmix.com.